0: This episode of The CFO Playbook features an interview between Ross McKay, Head of Partnerships at Soldo, and Alwyn Jones, Group CFO at Luno. Alwyn talks about the novel and evolving space of cryptocurrency and blockchain, explains what it's like to build a bank from scratch, and shares advice on retaining and hiring in a nascent industry. Each week on The CFO Playbook, you'll get insights from world-class financial leaders to help you grow your company. Yourself and face the challenges required of today's CFO. Before we jump into the interview, we want to invite you, our listeners, to head to our show notes to find the link to our listener survey. We want to learn about how to make the CFO playbook even better. As a thank you, you'll have the opportunity to win your choice of an iPad or Samsung Galaxy Tab S7. We would love your feedback.
1: Alwyn, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today.
2: Thank you, Ross. I'm very pleased to be here.
1: You've had a fascinating background. As as I was learning about your background and seeing the many different phases of your career you've been through, from consulting and then, of course, into the world of finance, and then progressively, seemingly, from the more global and traditional, into the more cutting edge, first through neobanks and now into the world of cryptocurrencies. Can you talk a little bit about how you've made that journey and, and maybe some of the pivotal moments that's led you to where you are now?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, as you rightly observe, it's not a traditional CFO background, right? Starting all the way in corporate finance at Citigroup, working my way through consulting through to Barclays and then time with Monzo, now currently with Luno, the cryptocurrency. Wallet and exchange. The thing that ties it all together actually is I've essentially been a financial services geek for twenty years, um, and so I've always been looking for new challenges and where things are really being disruptive. Be that digital disruption with Barclays, the app-based banking surge with Monzo, where we grew from a million to five million customers practically overnight, and now the exciting edge of cryptocurrency and the blockchain, and what that can do for transactional areas of finance. So. Really, it's been seeking scaling businesses, areas that can be disrupted by technology, and then areas that can really put power back in consumers' hands as we've gone through the career. So that's the kind of themes. It's no one sort of real pivotal moment, but all of those threads come together in what I'm currently doing.
1: If we just touch on, Alwyn, that a couple of those experiences you're talking about, the transformative and disruptive aspect of technology within finance. You've been in two particularly interesting areas connected to what you call fintech. So first of all, the neobank space and, and latterly crypto. And we'll touch on the crypto world in a second, but focusing in on your experience with Monzo, Can you talk a little bit about what that was like? Because I've got a particular interest in going from somewhere that really is quite innovative in Barclays, especially from a digital technologies point of view. But Monzo was and has had an incredible impact on the UK banking sector. And I think that the product has led to a lot of changes and innovations in conventional banks who are trying to compete with that. But of course, then There was the change of CEO, and then the founder leaving the company, and also what looks to be question marks around its ultimate business model. So at one point, it was the darling of the UK financial services sector, and then it became there were question marks over it, despite the fact it still got a very loyal fan base. What was it like to be part of the team that was at Monso during that time?
2: It was just an incredible, fun experience, full of energy and a real sense of mission that we were remaking the banking industry. I'd first seen the potential of digital technology at Barclays, where we digitized the lending offering, so putting loans readily available on your mobile phone, and that enabled us to grow that business massively. And it really was a case of letting the technology, let the bank get out of the way of the consumer and let them get on with what they wanted to do. We used to have a stage of six steps and you were done, right? It was very simple to get the loan in your pocket. What Monzo was doing was taking that to everything to do with your banking relationship and thinking through from first principles what actually is it that you want from the bank what are you trying to achieve here and how do we get out of your way to do that be that a very simple user interface that makes it very intuitive to find things simple products features on the account that actually wouldn't have a natural home in a big bank because they weren't traditional products so things like salary sorter or splitting your bills or the ability to make a payment to someone just using the mobile phone number. This is where the real power of technology suddenly starts becoming to play in the retail space because it enables you to do things much simpler. It gets out of people's way and they just get on with their lives. And so Monzo really had that at its core and is very mission-led. And similarly at Luno, I find that same focus. But what Monzo went through was also the very classic media cycle, right? So the exciting thing when you are less than a million customers and you are the scrappy startup and people are absolutely in, in love with your product and you have great product market fit, that's all everyone ever wants to write about. Then it gets a bit bigger and then you very naturally go through a cycle of, oh, maybe this isn't as good as we And um, We've been through that cycle many times. Now, there are questions about is the long-term viability but equally we're trying to build a bank from scratch and once you've built a balance sheet in excess of five billion pounds and you start putting it to work you started with a very narrow focus it was the current account it was the first thing that made people's lives easier but then there's the whole rest of banking to go after Uh, and we're seeing that now with the lending products coming through with premium subscription coming through uh, with business banking which has been a real success story Um, So I'm fully confident that as the business continues to grow, it will continue to become more profitable and there is a solid route through to the future. And what really stands out for me, just reflecting on my experience with Monzo, was some of the long-term impacts that that business has had on the industry, be it fair use fees, be it thinking through the standards of customer service that we put in place, making the app easy to use, and putting the customer at the heart of the experience, I think that'll be better for everybody, um, regardless of the long-term vision of Monzo. And even if Monzo disappears tomorrow, which I don't think is likely to happen, or indeed remotely possible, the industry will be better for it having been there, and that is something to be incredibly proud of.
1: It's interesting that you say that, because I remember first using Monzo. And it was at a point where you forget how transformative it was for you know, customers in the UK. Prior to that, I think I had heard about N26 beforehand. I was in Dublin at the time working, so I'd experienced that a little bit. But Monzo was just like something else. And I remember like, prior to that, you had companies like First Direct who were meant to be like you know the best internet bank in the UK, and they were so primitive. It was incredibly primitive that sometimes you take for granted now looking at all of the different... B2B and B2C financial services companies, the interface and the quality of user experience is so much better that I think Monzo's got a large role to play and actually being the catalyst for that.
2: I think that user interface is really so important. So what a lot of the big banks end up doing is taking a traditional process, and I've done this myself. I was responsible for taking the process of what's called mandate change, so changing the signatories on the business account online, And after a year of effort, we launched it. We got one-tenth of the cut-through that we thought we'd get. Because what we'd done was we'd taken an existing process and just digitized it, rather than saying, what can the technology do? How can it make this easier, simpler to understand? Uh, And when we did do that, be it at Barclays or at Monzo, you see this magical process just starting to happen where suddenly it's almost as if it's on rails. You don't have to drive the business anymore because... Customer adoption is so strong and customer affection is so strong. I mean, we're not quite at the stage of Harley-Davidson where people get Monzo tattoos, but I wouldn't be surprised if they were that far off. And that just speaks to the standards in the industry. I mean, if you want to put hard numbers on it, net promoter score at Monzo was routinely in the high 70s, sometimes 80 plus. And I remember the wild celebrations when Barclays' premiere got to plus one. That's the premier
1: customers. (laughs) Um,
2: It is now significantly better, I hasten to add. But as organizations grow, you start running into these organizational problems. And sometimes it becomes difficult because the more business you do with an organization, the more of it you're exposed to. And as a customer, that can actually lead to a much worse experience. And the trick is to make it feel joined up, but not overwhelming at the same time.
1: As you say that, I remember like going on the community pages of Monzo, like again, many years ago, and the support base was almost evangelical. They were fanatical about it. They, they felt like supporters, not customers. In many cases, they were shareholders because they contributed or they took part in some of the crowdfunding and so on. It was fascinating to see that. Of course, you mentioned there that you were building a bank from scratch and you were one of the few companies that was attempting to do something like that. So what is it like to be the CFO of someone trying something so disruptive and trying to build a bank from scratch? Every
2: day is different. Every day could be a curious mix between wild elation of what's been achieved and being punched <laughs> in the face, sometimes in the space of an hour. So starting from scratch, it's a bit of a truism, but you're doing everything for the first time in many cases. We were growing so rapidly that we were hitting kind of the next level of regulatory expectation, market expect- expectations, our shareholder expectations, almost before we would finished the previous stage. Even I think in the depths of the pandemic, we were still adding thousands and thousands of customers a day because demand for the product was so strong. And so you didn't have time to take a breath. You didn't have time to say, right, well, we'll plan out our technology strategy for finance for the next three years and we'll implement Project Blue in 24, it doesn't work like that. You were constantly revisiting the start of the, the circle. And what I found that's very common to startups and scale-ups is you start from the basics of finance, right? I remember someone shared a tweet with me at one point of being CFO of a startup, you go from these great strategic conversations about how you're going to take over the world to have you paid the teabag levy, and everything in between. So most of these organizations start by getting the basics right. Are you getting through your audits? Are you reporting numbers correctly? Do you have your monthly management accounts sorted? Everything Excel-based, not the great, wonderful sweep-through of technology that you expect, and very manual. We would manually reconcile the bank every month. And that is a very taxing place to be when you're scaling very, very quickly. And so what tends to happen is you don't invest in automation and technology. You don't invest in building a high-quality business partnering function. You don't invest in all the things that actually free up the CFO to be the role they need to be in that situation, which is more of a strategic sounding board for the rest of the exec. By definition, everything turns up in the numbers. So the CFO is the one person who sees everything from an enterprise level, apart from the CEO. But if you're in the depths of just trying to figure out what the numbers are month to month, you don't get to see that. And you're obviously building as you go. I mean, The old saw of you're trying to change the fighter plane into a jet engine whilst you're still flying it is exactly that experience. And how you then build that into an overall plan for the year, meeting with all the uncertainty, and put together a business plan for the year, even when you don't know what your growth is going to be like. It's very, very taxing, challenging, uh, and you have to be very agile when you do it. And coming into the crypto space, it's exactly the same. Right, Market volatility is something we can't predict. We know it has a major impact on our business. We need to be thinking through how we respond to different moves in that. And building that agility into your team, into the finance function, is critical for the business. Uh, otherwise, you're not doing your job. It's a lot of fun, but it is equally an incredible ride. And you do just have to hold on to the roller coaster sometimes and go up and down the peaks and troughs.
1: I like the irony of being a disruptive tech startup but actually because you're moving so fast, being forced to do it incredibly manually, because if you try and put technology in, certainly at that time, probably it wasn't available. And then even if it was, you would outgrow however you set it up very, very quickly.
2: Yes, because you don't know what you don't know. So both companies I've I've been at that have gone through this phase built a lot of our technology in-house. In some cases, that was built by engineers who didn't understand accounting. I've been in a situation where a debit in our journal is a negative number and will be forevermore because that's how it got built but that's not how accountants think about it and so part of this is you find people build stuff with the best will in the world because they're the first people trying to do it they're trying to do it and get something out quickly and make sure that it works and they don't necessarily have the grounding they don't necessarily have the experience and you come afterwards and try and professionalize that and clean it up in some cases or live with it uh, and making that trade off of where you can afford to fix the machine while still riding it very hard is a key part of being a scale up cfo
1: and when you joined monzo or or even in your current role given that type of chaos and the pace and so forth how did you decide where to prioritize cuz presumably there was an awful lot to be built and you had to figure out where to focus
2: So most CFOs, I think, will talk about their first 100 days in the assessment. Are the basics covered? What's your month close look like? What are the systems? Assess your team. Where do you think you're going to have to make changes? Where is your biggest area of risk? My process at Monzo was massively accelerated because it's a regulated bank. The position of CFO is also regulated, so within a month or two of joining, I was being interviewed effectively for my job by the PRA at the Bank of England because they needed to make sure that someone sensible was running this place, which is a quite an interesting experience because you're lined up with your entire regulatory team and external advisors. And I think they describe it as a friendly grilling, but you need to make sure you you know what you're, you're talking about. And at that point, you are also starting to talk about what you see as strengths and weaknesses as CFO. Of the control environment of the firm, of its strategic weaknesses. Where are the risks from a regulatory point of view? And they want to know that you've got a view. They don't necessarily have to agree with your view, but they want to know you've got one. And that's really, really healthy and quite an excellent. Coming into a, a business which isn't quite so regulated, crypto is a very new space, an evolving space from a regulatory point of view. There's a lot more latitude to shape the regulatory environment in partnership with regulators. But it's a bit more uncertain. You don't have that kind of immediate pressure. But it is that initial assessment of people, processes, systems, where are the risks, where are the biggest gaps between your picture of how you want finance to operate and actually refining your picture of how you want finance to operate alongside what you're learning about the business. Because my blueprint is not like I come with a binder and go, great, fantastic, page 33 is the checklist for how to do a month-end close. It's more a case of what is the business going to need given its strategy, its trajectory, and the rest of the personalities around the table at the exec team.
1: And how long did you have after you joined Monzo to actually prepare for this interview? About a month. It definitely focuses the mind, right? It's like, bring out your dead, make sure that you know what everything that's gone on, good, bad, or ugly, and then you just have to... I guess also with integrity, so you have to represent the truth, but in a positive fashion, you need to then have this very candid conversation with, a, would imagine, a very tough crowd.
2: They are tough, justifiably so. Right? You're looking after customers' money. This is really important to get right. And when you become as big as Monzo became, you're systemically important. So it's quite right. They should be looking to understand how the business is run. But I would frame it more as looking to understand and allow them to do their job. And their job is to make sure that the system is stable, customers are taken care of, and that we're not introducing a rogue element into the economy. We have a very supportive regulatory environment in the UK, but they're not for shows either. So you need to make sure that you're, you're on your game. But I've always taken the approach of regulators that ultimately, and same with auditors, right? They're there to help you run a better business at the end of the day. That's what everyone wants. No one wants to be sitting there with a business that's failed. So putting all of that in the right perspective is the prime way to do it. And it's the start of a relationship that will continue throughout your time at the firm and actually extends beyond in some cases, simply because of the nature of of what they're trying to do and their their objectives.
1: So then switching across to Luno then, and you alluded to that with the regulatory environment, surely that's quite a different quite a different game because the new banks, whilst disruptive, were in an established space, and cryptocurrency is is nothing if not uh, nascent and, and unstructured because people are still trying to make sense of it, even a decade after it really came to prominence. Exactly right.
2: What is it? Is it a currency? Is it an investment? Is it a means of exchange? Is it something else? And it doesn't naturally sit into any regulatory envelope. So you're right, the the regulators themselves in many cases and in many markets are just trying to get to grips with what does this actually mean? Where are the risks? If I'm looking at this from a consumer point of view, where are the risks to the consumer? Is is this something that's suitable for the mainstream? And our stance is that regulation is, is positive for the industry. It's not necessarily a universal stance across all parts of crypto, but if we want to be using this technology to deliver its full potential, which could be incredible, it has to be done safely and responsible regulation is part of that. So we've always been very actively engaged in all of the markets we've entered. We've always had the right licenses, in many cases worked with regulators to try and help them understand what this technology has as its potential, both for good and ill, and how they should be thinking about regulating. But it's a very, very positive Uh, step that regulators are getting more involved in space because we'll end up in a much better industry as a result.
1: You're obviously someone who partners with regulators in the UK and have done so prior to this role and are doing so again now. From outside or from afar and just learning a little bit about the space, it seems as if the UK is in the the sense of crypto is quite a tough regulator and has done things, for example, that, that other regulators in, in comparable countries haven't done. So Binance is one that, that Binance was has been one of the biggest exchanges, was, was closed down in the UK, but actually has more recently just got approval in places like France and Italy. And there are countries like Switzerland who are famous for being, from a regulatory perspective, incredibly encouraging and welcoming for the crypto world. So how does the UK approach or the regulators approach compare to these other countries who seem to be embracing the world of crypto more and perhaps being less conservative?
2: The first bit is, is there a strategic stance? Is this something that we want to actively encourage and develop? Or is this something that we're going to approach on its own terms and not have a positive or negative bias necessarily against it? And regulators can start from different points on that. spectrum. I think the first focus I've seen just looking at um, what the FCA has been doing and their areas of concern is there's a lot of volatility in the sector, there's a lot of innovation in the sector, and principally that creates a lot of potential risk for consumers. So it's not likely that the FCA will look at statistics that suggest that maybe 16% of people in the UK who've bought crypto, have borrowed to do so. Now, in a very volatile asset class, that can come back to bite you. And so protecting consumers is their starting point. And everything flows from that. So if it's viewed as a high-risk investment, which that judgment would suggest it is, then you need to be responsible about how you're promoting it. You need to make sure that people know what they're getting into, that the risk that they could lose money on it, and offset that with the benefits of having a decentralized currency and being able to transact in the way that you want and all of the other benefits that we see with the technology coming through. And that will evolve over time as their understanding increases, but also our understanding as an industry about how to meet and address those concerns. We've had missteps across the industry about how we do that. In my view, crypto is, is an immensely nascent space there's probably several waves of innovation that we're going to see before we see this industry in its final form. And that can be incredibly exciting for investors, incredibly exciting for mass market investors, but it's not without risk. And therefore we need to be responsible in how we make sure people engage with it. And that's entirely consistent with my entire experience dealing with the UK regulators at Barclays, at Monzo, and now at Luno. It's up to us in the industry to prove out why a different stance should be applied and convince of those benefits and make sure they can be delivered safely. And that's where I come back to good regulation is is very important. If people are trying to produce unrealistic returns or leverage risk, which is some of the recent market turmoil that we've seen has come directly from, that should be either clearly flagged to consumers or ideally stopped in promotion because it's not responsible business and we're not interested in irresponsible business we're interested in bringing this technology and putting the power of it in everybody's hands but we can't do that if people aren't held to the same standard
1: And with that in mind as well, the high-risk nature of crypto as an asset, and you touch on, of course, the fact that people haven't agreed on the definition of what it is or should be. They know what it could be, but they don't necessarily know what it is. A lot of the audience that will be listening to us will be CFOs, more often than not, at B2B-type companies rather than B2C. What role or what interests should a, a CFO in that context pay to cryptocurrency, do you think it'll enter uh, things like B2B payments or or even in the way that CFOs have to manage treasury? Or do you think actually it's something that's, again, just in another part, very specific part of the economy and in, in the world? I think it
2: absolutely will enter both of those things. I think in some cases it already is. So it's important to distinguish between cryptocurrency, which are the tokens that trade on the blockchain and the blockchain technology itself. So the idea of a distributed ledger that can be interrogated by multiple parties. There's no one central place where that's incorporated. And you can check the entire transaction history very rapidly. Actually, it's a complete boon to supply chain management. And in many places, that technology is already in place. Parties were using it um, before I left uh, in, in, in certain areas. So I, that technology is already penetrating the B2B space. In terms of corporate treasury, It's an asset class like any other. So you have to think about your relative risk reward, what you're trying to achieve from a treasury point of view. But there absolutely is a place for crypto assets in that space. I'm not going to say that I would recommend putting the entirety of your corporate reserves uh, into any asset class, uh, let alone necessarily crypto. But it's part of an armory of tools that you can be using to manage return and your transaction costs. And so, yes, you do need to be starting to think about it. And uh, auditors are increasingly getting au okay with how it works. And this is the start for me in terms of a B2B point of view of where the returns and the true potential of technology lies. That will have a feedback loop back into the consumer space as well. It's definitely becoming more mainstream. I think four, four or five years ago, you could have ignored this. I think now as a CFO, you need to be at least having a view and having maybe the dialogue with your board about what should we be doing in this space and how can we leverage and harness that technology.
1: It's a fascinating point because even if I think back to many of the conversations we've had down here, The places where crypto have come up have come from the CFOs that are operating in the crypto space, but it doesn't seem to have penetrated at least the mindset of of many finance leaders at the moment. But of course, that change may be coming. The other theme that's come up, and I'd love to hear what it's like in your space, is that the challenge of hiring and keeping your best people and hiring great people to add to your team, especially in the environment where you're scaling up rapidly and you probably have to grow your team. Up until a while ago, until the capital markets changed, everyone was like fighting to try and get their best people in. And now they're with the capital markets and the belief that a recession might be coming, that might be counteracting that somewhat. But the one thing that's specific to your space that's fascinating is you typically in crypto or Web3 can't really hire people with industry knowledge because there's not that many people with industry knowledge so you're you're having to go and hire in a different way because it's so nascent and so new so how do you approach that challenge again specifically as a it is an
2: interesting one so my first observation i make is actually there is starting to now become industry knowledge available in the market right so that very early adopters small Sample sizes, but people are out there who have this experience. And this is one of the active conversations we're having as a finance team about how much weight should we put on that when we're looking for it. But you're right, the vast majority are people from outside the industry, be it related to financial services like myself or indeed completely outside this. So a recent hire I've made uh, is actually in the computer gaming industry. What you're hiring more for, and this is where actually. There is more commonality with the startup and scale-up environment not just crypto but across fintech is adaptability and pace and attitude right so everything that's true about how fast-paced information is coming at you in a traditional finance team in a traditional company it may not be such a thing anymore but certainly the pace in a large corporate compared to a startup is much faster And your agility is quite important. So part of the function of the finance team in these businesses is to increase velocity and agility across the organization. If you're not doing that, then you're actually not delivering on a core part of the job. And so you need to hire people who can thrive in that environment, like uncertainty, very much able to shape something independently and move it forward without necessarily having a plan. Or a playbook or a set of rules for how it gets done, but still making good decisions, running the kind of business that you would want and acting in the right way. So you're, you're screening much more for character traits and biases rather than do you understand the difference between Ethereum and Bitcoin and the different protocols and how one might go about ordering crypto assets. To some extent, That's the easy bit to teach. Nine months in, there's still a lot for me to learn, so I'm not going to complain. Compare this industry to banking in terms of maturity or or how easy it is to understand. But the attitude and growth mindset that you need to succeed in a business where, when I first joined Monzo Finance, was five folks with a couple of engineers who had just joined, and it grew very rapidly to over fifty. Luno. we're at 1015 folks when I joined. We're now over 30. We'll probably be going over 50 in the next 18 months. So you go very rapidly from everyone's a generalist, everyone's pitching in, lots of stuff is being done off the side of a desk to actually that thing that was done off the side of someone's desk becomes someone's job. You now have someone who can look after tax. And spend their entire time looking at it. You now have someone who can look after business partnering with the loans business or the American business or whichever product or critical project you're focusing on and devote the vast majority of their time to it. That's a great luxury you don't have. And what that means is that finance teams can start to silo and lose their urgency and lose their um, ability to respond with the agility that the organisation needs. So you need to be consistently pumping in people who will continue to raise the energy level of the organisation. And that is pretty important to get right.
1: I've never heard it described that way, which is very interesting, the idea of the new people adding in that energy and that catalyst. Um, And I presume actually what you probably need as well as you scale is you need that energy to be coming from the department heads that you put in, that presumably when you're a team of five, you don't need department heads because everyone's in the same department. But when you scale that up, then of course you, you probably need to think very carefully But those direct reports into you. And
2: businesses grow very rapidly on an exponential curve. People don't tend to, right? People have exponential like parts of their career development might certainly fall into this category. And other areas where you don't grow as rapidly And so one of the hardest things in startups is figuring out when Fred, who was great in the role 12 months ago, is now out of his depth and that's nothing he's done wrong. But the business has grown so rapidly past him that now you need to bring in Sarah over the top or you need to figure out a different answer. And those kind of conversations happen in everyone's career and happen in Barclays as well as anywhere else. They just happen more slowly. Keeping your job the same, your title the same in a scaling business like Luno or Monzo over 12 months, in some ways is a promotion. And that's a very different mindset. And playing into that is all the usual human concerns of, Am I making progress in my career, ego, everything else? And it's really hard. And finance, to some extent, makes that worse because lots of folks have come from professional backgrounds where the next two years of your career are very clearly mapped out. You have a cohort of people who are all trying to do the same thing at precisely the same time. And I saw this in consulting. It's exactly the same. You're watching people who you view as your peers getting promoted or not. It's a very ready reckoner of how you're doing. And to go from that environment where that is all mapped out for you um, to one where it's completely freeform and the nature of what you're doing 12 months down the line might be completely different than what you signed on to do, frankly, freaks people out. And so managing that change is a real challenge. And if you don't get it right, if you don't have the people you need underneath you, then you get sucked down and you're not focusing on the broader strategic picture that you want to be focusing on. It's a critical rule of growing a finance team, really, in my mind, of when I've acted slow on people, it's cost me. When I've acted quickly, I've never regretted it. And making sure the team is ready to support you and has plenty of room to grow underneath you is critical to you growing and making sure you're having the impact on the business.
1: I like that idea of acting quickly. You've never regretted acting quickly. Do you have any rules of thumb that help you with that, that help you take the decision now rather than delay it until tomorrow?
2: This is a lesson I've frankly had to repeatedly learn, right? So I like to think that I'm a nice person. <laughs> I like to see the good in people. There's definitely been people I've hired that I've kept on with far too long. But in reflecting on those situations where maybe I haven't done it correctly, you always knew There was something that didn't chime right, be it in the probationary period, be it how they interacted with the rest of the team, the feedback you got about them. And that just tended to escalate over time. And you kind of know in your gut. And you can see it in watching people, right? They become more stressed. They know they're not performing to the level they need to be. You can get frustrated with them. They get frustrated with you. And the greatest sort of gift at some point is clarity, But I think in every single one of those situations where I persisted too long, the warning signs were there. And so the rule of thumb now is Am I reflecting enough on both? Am I stretching the people who are really knocking it out the park well enough? Am I clear about what their career advancement plan looks like? And am I being honest with myself where those areas aren't happening? And that kind of introspection done regularly is by far the best indicator of, do you need to act now? And it can be horrible, and it's not a conversation you want to have. And I've been on the receiving end of those conversations sometimes as well, right? So in my career, I'm old enough and ugly enough to have done that. But in the end, you generally appreciate that you weren't in the right place. And that's better for everybody, the organization, the individual, and me as a CFO.
1: And I think even when you're on the receiving end, it's that sometimes in time there's a recognition that you wouldn't have been the right person or when you see the person who comes in to do it, you can learn from them as well. But there is also, of course, a case where some people prefer experience over talent. And if that's the, the type of manager that you've had, then you need to see whether that's the right fit for you, presumably as well.
2: We're all busy. and um, I think one of the biggest and easiest failings you can make as a manager is not giving good feedback. So reviews should not be a surprise, right? They should just be a summation of what's continuously been going on. We've recently rejigged our review approach at Luno to what we're calling continuous conversations. So every six weeks, a check-in of how you're doing. For me, that's still a little bit slow. So I would use to weekly PD, personal development conversations, that you go have a coffee with your manager and literally talk about how you were doing every week. And that is... On one hand, freaky and full on, and people can't necessarily reconcile that with how much feedback that must involve. And is that even bearable as a human being? But actually, you lose your ego very quickly when that's happening. And the progress that then happens is just remarkable. Now, it's become hard to do with pandemic and hybrid working, but the greatest disservice you can do your people is not them what you're thinking about them. Right or wrong, because then you can do something about it. But if they don't know and they're trying to second guess you, it just wastes so much energy, which could be more profitably directed to making the business go faster or them figuring out what's next.
1: The point that you touch on about making sure you've got the right development plans and pace and in the right environment one topic that often comes up is the use of different tools and technologies to try and automate. And I love the fact, coming back to your earliest, one of your earliest points about uh, at the very early stages of setting up a disruptive company, it can be incredibly manual and painful. But as you grow, you invest in things differently. Over the period of time, perhaps the last four or five years, there's been a proliferation of different tools and technologies to help finance teams. And that's often a theme that we touch on on the podcast is that which tools and technologies Technologies do you use and do you believe in with a particular interest in trying to elevate your team above the manual work wherever possible so that they can focus on the high, highest order things. So in, in where you are at Luna, or perhaps even prior to that in Monzo, what were the types of technologies that you embraced as a finance team? It comes back to
2: the challenge that you're really trying to address, which is very often you start off an operational reporting and control focus, and then you move to a more fp value-add, and focus over time. And a key part of that shift of both organizations has been tools like Anaplan, which enable you to pull data, work with multiple people working together on the same scenarios, allow the whole thing to go much faster with a greater degree of control and integrity, actually. So your model validation is much easier to do. And getting the organization to use the tool as well, rather than just being a finance thing, so we're going through that, that phase now. We're just moving into we're just doing our first real budget refresh on Anaplan and Luno. There's still more modules to be built. It's not the finished article in any way, shape or form. But already we're starting to see the ability to think through different cuts, different scenarios in a much more rapid way. And it comes back to the point of, can you use technology so that your team spend less time trying to tell you what the numbers are and more time telling you what they mean? Right. That's more fulfilling for them. It's more impactful for the business and it enables the business to get through its decision loops much more quickly, right? The, I'm a big fan of the OODA loop concept from John Boyd. You, know, you observe, you orientate to the data, you decide to act. And in fighter pilot lingo, if you go through that loop more rapidly than the opposition, you win. So that's true even if you have no opposition, right? The more quickly we can react to what's going on in the market, the more quickly we can figure out what's needs to be done from a business point of view, the better quality decisions we'll make and the sooner we'll get into actions. The best way to think about the finance team when it's really rolling is it's like the nervous system of the organisation. And so do you want to be the stereotypical dinosaur that it's trying to figure out whether it's been hit by the meteorite and is dead whilst you're working through your multitude of Excel spreadsheets and version controls and issues? Or do you want the system just to be presenting the information to you? And I've never completed that journey. So I'm not claiming I have have the full sort of playbook (laughs) of how it's looking, but that's what technology can do for finance teams. Be it, are you using an outsourced ledger system? Are you using a system like Amazon Plan? Are you putting all your data in the cloud? All of this technology increases control, increases fidelity, increases speed, and that is priceless in the environments that we're dealing with.
1: I think it's fascinating to hear you talk about that journey and, and the the idea, again, of building business cases around time rather than around money, per se, because you want to private.
2: Absolutely. Velocity is critical, right? You've got to have a clear direction of where you're trying to go. And the faster you can go to that point as a business, the better. But finance is a key enabler to that. If finance isn't on the case, the business will naturally slow down to the tempo that finance operates at. So you can be an active inhibitor and break on the business, or you can be an enabler. And it's building that shift from, are the numbers right? Is money ending up where it needs to be? Do we have everything in order? Are we getting through our audits? To how forward-looking are we and how quickly are we doing that? Which by the way, auditors love as well, because these systems, when they work, make their lives a lot easier.
1: And now, as we draw the interview to a close, uh, I often like to ask guests, and I would I would love to ask you the same question, about those who are listening that are that are aspiring CFOs that would like to perhaps one day be in that position and, and, and lead and, and run an, a finance organisation. What tips and advice would you have for them so that they could be ready and successful when the when time comes? I
2: obviously didn't necessarily aspire to be a CFO uh, when I started out in my career, and I mean, in that sense, an accidental CFO, but... What advice would I give or what would I wish I'd known now? It's really about building in three areas. So firstly, just building your ability to build relationships. These are critical as a CFO, right? Whether it's your relationship with your CEO, your critical one is your HR director, uh, the other members of the exec team, your board, investors. You have all of these independent relationships. It's not all just done through the CEO or the founders. You have to build them and they're critical to your doing your job. So building your ability to do that uh, from an early stage is critical. The second building area for me is breadth of view, right? So this enterprise wide view that we talked about earlier, you as CFO have to look at the business entire. Or is our people strategy right? How are we thinking about marketing? Everything shows up in the numbers and therefore everything is your domain. And you cannot be an effective sparring partner with your CEO unless you have that enterprise-wide view. So the sooner you can start developing that, the more likely you're going to look like the strategic CFO that you probably want to be. And the final element, and again, I don't always do this well, is building personal resilience. If the C-suite's lonely. You're responsible. No one else is there to back you up. You're making the calls, and everything is coming at you. And How do you build those time and circuit breakers into your day that make sure that you are at your best? I'm a better person when I spend time taking the dog for a walk, walking through woods, doing stuff I find for fun, spending time with my wife and kids, going to the gym. Than when I don't do those, It's, it's almost like it takes some of the pressure off so that when more of it comes in, which it will do at an unpredictable time, you can absorb it, think clearly and make the right calls. And those habits start early. When I don't do that, I have less capacity. I can get caught up in the detail of something. What may not be a crisis when I think about it clearly becomes a crisis because I make it a crisis. And you're never gonna be perfect on this. And there's always something that's gonna catch you unawares the more time you can build in to make sure you're building your personal resilience will just enable you to be your best self at the job you're doing now and the job you want to have
1: great advice sage advice for anyone that's listening that has that aspiration so Alwyn thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the podcast brilliant it's been a pleasure Ross thank you one last thing we want to learn from you our listeners To learn how we can make the CFO Playbook even better, head to our show notes to find a link to our listener survey. As a thank you, you'll have the opportunity to win your choice of an iPad or a Samsung Galaxy Tab S7. We would love your feedback. This show is brought to you by Soldo, the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses. With Soldo, you can control every expense, track spend in real time, automate financial reporting, and then use those insights to fuel growth. Learn more at soldo.com.